Are you an emotional guy? Yeah, of course, like most people. <laughs> no, outwardly. Outwardly emotional? Yeah. D- uh, you don't know. Oh, uh, that's a no. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, what do you give this? What did you give it? You, you always rate it first. That's a, that's a hard five, man. to Discograffiti, the music obsessives podcast that gives freaks like you and me the chance to connect with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. Now that we're two and a quarter years into our existence, I am thrilled to announce that we have partnered with the podcast network Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. You can check out all their music podcasts at OsirisPod.com. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on every single musical endeavor that Mark Robinson has bequeathed upon the Teen Beat Nation since the demise of Unrest and Air Miami. Along with our very special guest, Mark Robinson himself, who's gone through his entire catalog, every single release he's ever had a hand in writing, performing, and or guesting on, and rated them all from zero to five stars. This is part four of a batshit crazy 16-hour interview. This installment, the final chapter, is entitled My Dinner with Mark. And honestly, don't even ask me who's supposed to be Andre Gregory and who's supposed to be Wallace Shawn, because by this point in our discussion, we have blended in ways which probably more aptly reflects Ingmar Bergman's persona. Over the course of this episode, we discuss the unending flood of new bands, projects, name changes, and bemusing detours that have characterized Mark's work since Air Miami's dissolution, the ballsy recording rules that Mark utilizes to create material under the monikers Fang Wizard, Party Milk, et al., and the serpentine, unpredictable moves of an incomparable career that make a strong case for why Mark Robinson is the consummate artist. If you're a Mark Robinson superfan like me, you'll want to turn this free version off right now and opt for the ultimate director's cut of this episode. The Lieutenant Cut on our Patreon features 33 minutes of essential additional material, and the Ultimate Director's Cut on the Major Tier features a whopping 53 additional minutes. Both cuts feature overviews of entire releases that we had to cut for time, as well as kick-ass rock nerd repartee I hereby deem unskippable. And you can find the Ultimate Director's Cut in our Patreon record shop for mere pennies at patreon.com slash discograffiti slash shop. Or just subscribe for the complete versions of all our shows. Even if you're on the fence, just head over there because it's finally free to become a basic member. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discograffiti is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums. 
Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes even bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all. The real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Coming up, we've got Robert Schneider rating the Strawberry Alarm Clock, an interview with Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music, Kula Shaker, The Lemon Twigs, and the three surviving Diedrich siblings rating everything they ever released as one of the greatest bands of all time, bar none, The Free Design. Oh, and Michelle Phillips, along with Mamas and Papas biographer Richard Campbell rating everything they ever did. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And away we go then. Today's guest is a man of action. At 16 years old, he set up his own label called Teen Beat to release the music his band Unrest was making, along with the super cool sounds his friends' bands were making. Over 550 fetishistically cataloged releases later, Teen Beat is still a going concern. Keep in mind, I'm not much of a sports guy, but this man's right arm, his strumming arm, is more impressive to me than any pitching legend in baseball history. There is no doubt that today's guest should ensure that shit like J-Lo did her tush because it's brought so much joy to so very many, not to mention the enjoyment that fucking limb brings to his taste buds every day at noon or thereabouts as he scarfs down his daily peanut butter and jelly sandwich. On a less delectable note, I've unfortunately annoyed him half to death in the weeks leading up to this summit meeting. This, the most in-depth interview I've yet done for the show, my notes amounting to a whopping 201 pages. He's revealed to me a few days ago that nobody annoys him and that I, in fact, both annoy him and trigger him, (laughs) although we've since made up, but I don't hold it against him, even though it brought me to the verge of tears at that very moment since he is the most incredibly prolific human being whose qualitative yardstick is still in perfect working condition he's been a musical deity to me for nigh on three decades so buckle up because here we go down a deep deep pop intensive rabbit hole are you ready lads and ladies shooting roman candles up into the ink black nighttime sky out in the yonder reaches of discographityville we have gathered here today in a collective bid to achieve maximum pop perfection ergo here i sit both proud and humbled as i get to introduce to you a man named mark robinson that's me how's it going it's going pretty well. You are an unflappable guy. I knew I'd get no reaction from you at all. So here's where I got to ask. This is so wild to me because if it was me, and we're obviously two very different people, it wasn't that much longer after that that you started a new career. What's a new career? Well, as a des- as a visual designer. designing, yeah. Oh, I mean, I yeah, I think I'd been a visual designer since sixth grade. Right. That's why you became a yeah. great designer. But what I'm saying is, you decided, you know what? I don't need this to pull in money. I I can uh, I can do this never, other thing. None of this. I mean, music never really pulled in that much money. It did back in the day when our rent was two hundred dollars. 
right. and we were playing a lot of shows, it did pay for the rent for a while. So that was great. And then there was some point when I wasn't in a semi-popular band and I didn't have the money to pay that rent. And then I did go out and start doing design for money. It's true. Yes. That was probably like 88, like you're talking about. Yeah. Sorry, 90. Uh, okay. So I guess, you know, what I'm trying to get at is you have, you know, what maybe is not something that could be considered like a valid source of income because what you were making doing this music that to me is perennial will last forever and is just dynamite. It, music doesn't get better. It just is as good as this, in my opinion. But somebody who's churning out great stuff, release after release, and then makes what I'm guessing is a conscious decision to not want to or need to rely on it to provide that income and instead do something different in order for you to I'm, i guess have control over your output right control you, over my musical output yeah because isn't there a world where you double down on the pop smarts of late era unrest and era miami and you're able to pay all your bills doing this thing that as a kid i'm guessing you figured you'd do only that i'm thinking that there's a world that that could have happened but you consciously and in my mind it's the bravest and coolest decision you ever made and i'm curious what drove the decision sorry i'm not, i don't know if i know what the decision is what was my decision to start designing things for money like hi having people hire me to do design no not to do that but to do that in lieu of having to rely on music to do that for you i mean i never relied on music to do anything yeah, I mean, music, I mean, it was nice to not have to have a regular job for those times when we were in unrest in Air Miami, but it was never like a huge cash. It's never like it was enough money. Like I could have made more, more money working at McDonald's, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I understand that. But that being said, there are bands who were doing well at that time. What I'm saying is the kind of music that you were mainly making at that time was not experimental to where the general public would not be able to understand or latch onto it. There's a Mark Robinson in an alternate universe that's like a <laughs> Max Martin who's writing pop hits that are monstrously huge for boy bands or there is a fucking parallel universe where that's happening. Okay. If people make decisions in their lives. Sometimes it's knee jerk and they just choose something mm. other times it's thought through so i'm so curious during this time if this is weighing on you if it's on your mind what move do i make what or did everything just kind of happen i think everything just kind of happened i mean i was kind of thinking like what am i gonna do now like what's the next band and i had always had this idea i mean we can talk about that when we get to flin flon i guess but yeah it was always what is the next thing and what's the next band what am i doing next but i don't think i had any thoughts of having a top 40 hit or something like that i don't know <laughs> so i wasn't moving i wasn't trying to yeah. move towards that or away from that because it didn't seem like something that was attainable is that the right word attainable attainable thank you Look, again, just some douche sitting in a chair right now. You don't know me from a bucket of paint, really, but I have capabilities that I believe are within the realm of A&R-ish kind of stuff. I mean, I know what is catchy, what's not, that kind of stuff. Your capacity in writing a song, you have the ability, the earworm ability. You can't, that can't be taught. You have that ability. And so ultimately, if there's an argument in your soul that you're not conscious of between the pop songwriter and the guy who titled his record company and 
is bad after Henry Cow stuff, the punk one. Because I think this decision put you on a track for the rest of your life, you know, and thank God for that. You're doing exactly what you want whenever you want. You're beholden yeah. to no one. You answer to no one but yourself. Right. But it, I don't think there was any decision made. I don't think I was doing anything different than I was doing when I was in high school putting out that music on cassette, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know you have like a good point here, but I'm not sure I'm following it. I mean, I am following it, but I'm just not sure how to answer this. Then let me put it to you in terms that... <laughs> No, no, I mean, really. You're not going to get a better answer, but go ahead. That's okay. But let me relate it to you in, in how I experience it. So I left my career as a hearing instrument specialist in order to do this show full time. Right. And I'm trying to follow the whims of, you know, when I see the numbers, when they go up because of a certain guest, I am trying to double down so that I connect with an audience and they tell their friends, their friends tell their friends, etc. Mm -hmm. And I think if you were in my shoes, if you saw the numbers rise, you'd be like, I wonder how far in the other direction I could go. I see. Right. That's all. Yeah. I don't know. I don't mean, I don't think, again, as we've discussed, the number of pop songs I had written up to that point was probably could fit on two hands. So was I capable of making some sort of like a Chumba Wumba <laughs> song or something like that? <laughs> I'm just saying this is entirely 100% a compliment. You have it within you. There's no question in my mind. You have it within you. Whether it's something that would that would tantalize you on a spiritual level, like this is what I was meant to do, is write pop songs for other people. The answer is almost assuredly a no. Other people, so it wouldn't be me. I'm saying that particular existence that I spoke about, it, it okay. could very well have been you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could very well have been you. But I had to address it. Ultimately, with Air Miami specifically, why did the band stop so quickly? First of all, it wasn't a band, really, because it was just me and Bridget with whoever would play with us. So that was kind of difficult to always be finding people. And then I think Bridget just kind of lost interest in it as well. Really? Uh-huh. That's interesting. You know, it was a lot of work or whatever. You mean the touring aspect more specifically? Just like or? the whole thing, I think. Yeah. That's wild. Well, I mean, she wasn't really contributing as much musically to the unrest stuff. And then Air Miami was more of a collaboration. I mean, yeah. that was kind of me prodding her into, you know, maybe I was pushing her too much to like, because ideally I wanted to have half the songs hers. So the galvanizer. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then that became kind of the, the thing is just up until the present, it's like the promise and excitement of new projects just popping up. And then the retitling of the band for every Fang Wizard record. Uh, mm -hmm. I feel like Air Miami was the birthplace of all that stuff happening. Right. Yeah, it kind of seems like it. Okay, so I can skip this question. Was it a conscious decision post-Air Miami to evacuate the indie scene and entirely do your own thing? I don't think I evacuated the indie scene, did I? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, evacuate that specific path that you were on. I think it then became other areas of interest. Or actually, <laughs> it sounds like you were just starting to listen to different music, and then that came out in your music. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Well, let's barrel I mean, I, forth and see. Yeah, let's do it. Hello, goodbye to Olympic Death Squad. So first off, what prompted a solo career now, even though you're naming it a band? <laughs> I don't know if it was a career. I just wanted to do something. I didn't have a band. So I wrote those songs and went in the studio. And I think I play all the instruments. And it was done so quickly. Not a lot of time spent on it. Not like the Air Miami record. Almost more like one of those early Teen Beat tapes. Yeah, yeah. Like first take. Obviously, I'm not an accomplished drummer. So I just kind of went on there. You know, it's, it's a little lo-fi because, you know, just the studio that I was recording in. And it was just kind of a fun thing to do. And somehow, 
somehow became like a released on vinyl and cassette and CD. If somebody asks you what's your first solo record, what's your knee-jerk response? Is it blue? Do you consider this sort of your first solo record? I mean, it's technically a band called Olympic Death Squad. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I guess I think of it more of uh, the Tiger Banana, maybe. Tiger Banana, the, okay. Yeah, because it says Mark uh, Robinson on it. And it just because it says that, yeah. <laughs> My favorite aspect of Olympic Death Squad is that it's almost a solo record by process of elimination because it wasn't intended to be that way. Tim Moran had planned to show up for the recording session and perform additional guitar parts, which would have negated this as being a solo release, but didn't True. make it because of 12 inches of snow in Arlington that morning. Yeah. So it just became a solo record that day, which is terrific. Right. I love that. <laughs> I think it's a great record. I'll just kind of give you my review before we go with the track by track. I think sequencing wise, it's a real head fuck initially because it's got that languid, perfect teeth kind of deal. Don't cry. <laughs> so it feels, I don't know if distracted is the word, maple leaf especially, but by track three, it's like gem after gem for me. Anyway, I wasn't super familiar with it at the time, which was to my eventual detriment as a human being, because this one, it rewards repeat listens, it gets better and better the more you listen to it. And if one follows your career closely, there are parts of this record that try for a thoroughly dissimilar emotional effect that Unrest was going for. So it really is crucial listening. I give this one four and two thirds. Wow. Yeah, I think there's some good songs on here. When I've done like solo shows, a lot of these have been in the set over the years. But I was kind of like unhappy with the performances and unhappy with the recording. So I will give it overall a 3.4 and one third. I love it. Now they better all have decimal points and fractions or I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> Okay, so this is Rykeer. Initially, I thought, oh man, he's going to be singing like Plastic Bertrand for the rest of his career, but it turned out to only be the one song in the reprise, but not so incredibly different from what I would expect something like Air Miami yeah. to be doing. Yeah, it's like a sequel to um, You Sweet Little Heartbreaker from Me, Me, Me or something. Right. Like. Or like, it even has a Devo feel to it. It's got a Devo mm -hmm. vibe to it. Maple Leaf, right off the bat, I'm thinking he's back obsessed again with the descending melody from Imperial. Same well, right? Yeah. Kind of okay. trying to explore that a little more. Like I thought that that was something cool that I didn't really explore as much. Later with those solo records, I definitely did that too. Yeah, I love that you don't really remake songs, but you get entranced by certain progressions. And over your career, you keep going back to that wellspring, which is interesting because I can't point to any other performer who really does that. And your style, you know, the sort of riff that could become cyclical to the point of just going on for the rest of eternity, that by default, you know, I am by no means a guitar player. But when I do play, it's always rhythm and it's always going for and sort of in the same wheelhouse as the riffs that you come up with, because it's finding that progression and then letting it hypnotize you. Nice. Um, and it sounds like that's you're rehypnotizing yourself here with Maple Leaf. Show Your Age, I love this. This is i think the first great song in the record tell me about this one hmm. i wish i knew more about it 
Uh, you should reacquaint yourself with this one. <laughs> you know, the I mean, first... I remember how it goes. I'm just trying to think of like where the inspiration came from or where the words uh, okay. Are. The first thing I thought of when I heard this was, you know, REM after the first slew of albums, like maybe up to the point of like around 86, 87, they started to have a rule that they would implement about not allowing themselves to retread the old songwriting territory or like mm -hmm. how Brian Eno would erase something if it sounded too much like you. Are you coming up with rules or guidelines for yourself here so it's not too unresty i don't think so i almost think this is kind of like a bridge between perfect teeth to flin flon like air miami and olympic death squad are kind of like stepping stones to that in terms of the sound yeah getting closer to like what i was listening to when I was like 14, which would have been like a lot of Joy Division, New Order, a certain ratio and things like that. Yeah, this one is definitely a little bit more of a bummer in that respect. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, most of the stuff I listen to is not sparkling pop. It's uh, music to slit your wrist by. Huh. Show Your Age is one of my favorites. Newfoundland, I love. Gorgeous, minimalist, instrumental. It really hits the spot. Sometimes I Can Breathe is much more of a straight up folk song than anything I would have ever come to expect from you. Hmm. Talk me about that one that was a big surprise hearing that right feels actually like galaxy 500 a band i love yeah they're great number one played song on the record i feel like with this one that there were some rules that you abided by like anything that was too mark robinson like you worked around that's what it sounds like because it's oddly huh. straight up sounding i mean yeah. that's not odd but for you it feels like it is there's no yeah there's none of the mark robinson curly cues which is great I mean, that one i mean that particular song i think you nailed it it's like kind of a galaxy 500 tune definitely an influence mr dean wareham Michael Dean Wareham, as I learned recently. I heckled him once at a show at the Troubadour. This is 10 years ago. And I screamed out, what are your favorite Galaxy 500 records in descending order? And mm -hmm. he, he actually did it for me, <laughs> which was amazing. What was the order? Two, one, three, I believe was the, the order. Oh, really? No, it's one, yeah. two, three. It is one, one two, two, three. Is correct it answer. Is, yes. It is that totally correct. <laughs> Today is one of the greatest albums of all time. It's my number one late night road trip driving album. There's no better record, I think, for late night road trip. Okay, nice. Okay, side two, Ski Jump. Again, another super dry in the style of Maple Leaf. Talk to me about the super dry production style. Or was that just a default? There was just so much reverb. <laughs> up to that point and that I was just kind of obsessed with the dry sound like I said the dry sound of the King Crimson drums on that first album yeah. and Steely Dan Asia is also a very dry kind of in your face record and then after this like all the vocals on the Flynn from records all my solo records are very very dry it's almost like I'm like singing right into your ear kind of sound do you still and prefer that I mean when you go back and hear the unrest records do you feel like it's too wet I don't maybe I'm just so used to those recordings it doesn't I don't really think about it I would probably approach it that way if we were going to like re-record it <laughs> or yeah. record it tomorrow yeah also another thing you're doing here is you're stacking harmonies which is mm -hmm. i believe kind of your first foray into that i can't think of any other time when you did that okay which is wild to me because the effect is definitely like a warm blanket it's really pretty right. um, i think again with like the f access to the four track recording like we talked about before maybe i just had my own four track and i was like oh i can actually do these things whereas when maybe when i was in unrest and didn't have access to that yeah it didn't occur to me to like, you know, multi-track 20 things on top of it. We probably didn't have time to do that anyway. And then you're still pulling from the Imperial well here, right? The descending chord sequence? Yeah, that general sound, I suppose. I mean, I'm not 
pulling from that well necessarily. I think you could say like, did Led Zeppelin pull from the same well for every song? No, they stole from a number no. of black men. Oh well, sure, okay, yeah. bad example. But you know what I mean, like. Yeah, especially if you're if you're a big fan, these are like motifs that pop up in your work, and it's right. It threads right. your career together for the obsessive listener. And yeah, uh huh. Mm -hmm. We got yep. uh, the reprise, which you know I love that. That's how you know it's a concept album. Is you put a reprise of the first song at the end. It's a concept album, right? Yeah, like the book ending. Beautiful trick. Great record, man. I really, really enjoyed this one. From here forward, it's all pretty new to me. So I was super intimate with all this stuff. Now I'm discovering it. So sure. it's a cool twist on how it normally cool. works out for me. All right. So here is where my last phase begins. That is, as far as I see it, and again, just so you don't have it mixed up or confused, that I'm a deity of some sort. I am a douche sitting on a chair. Somehow the chair thing really grounds it. But after the project, we are done with phase two. You must have known this at the time. Phase two is concluding for me, he thought to himself, in 1997. And then also in 1997, <laughs> Mark thought, hey, I think phase three is beginning for me, which I'm going <laughs> to entitle, Satisfying All My Various Personal Muses, No Matter What, For The Rest Of My Life, 1997 okay. to the Present. And I threw in my, but it says on my paper, your. Oh, and not coincidentally, hello, Flint Flon. Action! And now, an important message from Don Bowles. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for District Attorney of Los Angeles who has over a decade of experience successfully defending those falsely accused of crimes. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate running for Los Angeles District Attorney who is dedicated to ending mass incarceration. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who co-created and produced the televised freakout public access show known as The Three Geniuses, which the LA Weekly dubbed the most intentionally psychedelic show on television. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who is an accomplished Phototheraminist. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who now has a record label with punk rock legend and all-around weirdo Don Bowles. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate running for Los Angeles District Attorney who was not only the features editor at Hustler Magazine, but also Larry Flint's editorial point man for his First Amendment lawsuit against the military-industrial complex and the Pentagon. If you believe in liberty, justice, and the American way, vote for Dan Kapelovitz. Stick it to the man. Vote for Dan. Dan Kapelovitz. I'm Dan Kapelovitz, and I approve this message. <laughs> Mark's love of Joy Division and Factory Records was particularly evident when he formed Flin Flon with Nattles from Cold Cold Hearts and Mac Datesman from True Love Always. They have released two albums of bass and drum-oriented rock so far. Mm-hmm. All right, so this band is a compendium of strict rules to specifically sound different than other bands, and the biggest rule is that all rules must be broken. 
all songs written on bass guitar, no cymbals, just like Peter Gabriel 4, but yes, with a hi-hat, mm -hmm. and no guitar chords, just notes, which was then broken later. And everyone mm -hmm. had to be from New Jersey. Correct. Okay. The Rossin was a coincidence and not a... Right, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't hurt. It has a New Jersey kind of aggressive vibe to it. Okay, so I know you talk about wanting a drum and bass band, but how long had you been thinking of having one by the point at which you formed the band? I want to say I had that idea... I don't know, like probably since like the late 80s or early 90s. The original idea was to have two bass guitars and maybe two drummers, not to bring King Crimson into everything, but they actually had a, what they called a double trio, which was two drummers, two guitar players, two bass players. But just that kind of setup of having the double, I was just really into the bass. So you can hear that in um, Sweet as a Candy Bar and Air Miami, just various places where you can hear maybe Flynn Fauna's coming, like the gas chair on the Malcolm X Park album, things like that. So it was always an idea to have, I guess, Joy Division and a certain ratio may have been the, the kind of impetus. I feel like once it went through the filter of me and Matt and Nattles, we're reminiscent of that, but I think we kind of created something different as well. Tell me about, because this is exciting to me, the process of creating with Flin Flon, it was a vastly different process than you'd engaged in in the past, right? Probably. I mean, it was, it was similar in terms of bringing a song to the band and then having the band play it. Like sometimes I would write the bass and the guitar parts. But were you only locking yourself into being able to create in a certain way so it would come out a certain way? Well, I mean, I, just writing the song on the bass is, makes it sound completely different. Yeah. And Nattles was a bass player, so she, she was already writing all her songs on the bass. Right. And I agree with you, by the way. You texted me at one point because you would not stop texting me previous to this interview. <laughs> And you said that the best thing Flin Flon ever did was Swift Current. I don't know if you were being facetious or, or not. No. Okay, uh -huh. yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's like you had a mission statement. It was almost like an advertisement for the music of Flin Flon, right? Because uh -huh. it's in the, in the style of and represents, and it's the first thing, and it tells you everything you need to know about the band. It's kind of amazing like that. I love the drum sound in it, the snares snap like a rat tail towel whip, and the robotic motor thing without losing sight of melody and what you do the groove is obviously very much to the fore here just a powerful song it's fantastic and then on the flip in the grand tradition of bands who write songs with their name Flin Flon I think I even like this one better it's got like a really wow. cool hushed vocal although explain to me what's the blue eyes white power lyric <laughs> No, but I mean, I remember at the time being like, I love the sound of it, but mm -hmm. the words themselves, and I'm not a fucking snowflake. I could give a rat's ass about that shit. I just didn't right. know because except for the words themselves, there's no sure. context as to what you mean, except maybe it sounded good. That's kind of it. There is a song by the band, speaking of kind of borrowing things from other bands, or the band Versus has a song called White Power Porch, which is like mm -hmm. about a white power dude sitting on his porch. So I kind of took that line. There's white power black power it was just kind of a collage really i love this single i'm gonna give this five stars yeah i think this is probably one of the best things we did it reminds me of when we did the airplane rider stop sign single in air miami right it's kind of like okay we're gonna do our best out of the gate or whatever yeah i'll give it like a 4.6 the difference, though, that I would say, if I can amicably disagree, is that 
Dear Miami single, as perfect as it was, was not entirely representative of the band's sound. This is like a distilled essence of what Flynn Flon does best, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so September 28th, 1998, the debut Flynn Flon record comes out A-OK. One thing that's more than just worthy of note, but something that I don't believe exists on any other record, is there are lock grooves that separate each track. The experience that I had with this record was at my friend Brett Becker's house in Lawrence, Kansas. Brett is the guy that you went back to his apartment after the Air Miami mm-hmm. show and that I did LSD with when listening to Bavarian Mods and having my mind blown wide apart by a 14-year-old Mark Robinson's efforts. But I was at his house. He put this on. He had to then lift the needle manually at the end of every song. Now, yeah. I heard in an interview you talking about you're literally at the pressing plant asking, how much extra does this cost? Oh, nothing? Then I'll do it for every mm-hmm. song. It was like yeah. a spur of the moment decision. I'm curious, do you love that one of your records has that on it? I love it. I love the lock grooves. I think it's explained somewhere, maybe, I think, on the record, that it's kind of like 10 singles. Yeah. And with a single, of course, you have to lift it up. You have to flip it over. So I don't know why everybody was up in arms about... My favorite four words of the explanation, this will facilitate focus. (laughs) Exactly. You sound like a stern (laughs) professor. (laughs) Okay, so... I think I was influenced by, there was a record by the band 23 Skidoo, I think in like 1982 or something like that and they had lock grooves in the middle of the record and I think that was the inspiration I was like wow there's you have to like pick it up to get to the other side of the record because we had all heard lock grooves at the end of the sides yeah yeah you know, where they kind of have the loops Sergeant Pepper kind of, Sergeant like, wow. Pepper had the never do see any other way right so it was just kind of cool when I, and then when I found out it was yeah. free I was like yeah let's load it up <laughs> I mean <laughs> the conceptual heft behind that is is awesome the actual experience that I had and I don't know if it was my fucking mood that day or whatever i don't remember what was going on but it annoyed mm-hmm. me so much yeah it really did and i that had to have been at least part of the reason why because it's a confrontational and aggressive thing to do to the uh-huh. person who is giving you money for this thing i have um, a great uh letter that someone wrote that i still have like a really upset person like it's an entire page or more <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't make you stop and have second thoughts about it. You were like, man, I'm sorry that they, yeah, you, no, you gotta, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I still love it. Yeah. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> but I, I thought could... you said you had lost me after Olympic death squad. So you still, you did hear Flynn Fong. This was you said my, that yeah. was all new to you. Yes, because I didn't own this. I was at my friend Brett's house. He had the record. Okay. He said, you want to hear the new Mark Robinson? Okay. And I was like, hell yeah. So he put it on and there was the lock groove thing. And mm-hmm. then I'm going to be honest with you. This record is not my favorite. So... Mm-hmm. That was the last. So like, this is the and, end. This is like I'm not gonna. No, it's I'm not, not gonna, that. I'm no Stop longer gonna that. follow this guy. I'm not Why? fucking. No, it wasn't. It wasn't a conscious decision. Okay. First of all, your stuff. I wasn't hearing about it. I don't know if, I, if there was an email list that was going out. I really didn't know about it. Post Flynn the other bands mm-hmm. you had. When I got in touch with you, this was my introduction to even hearing the names of some of the bands. So you're not getting mentions in the kind of press that I was, re- whatever, if I was even reading about sure. records. Spin Magazine wasn't writing about Spin Magazine, which I never, <laughs> I, I never had a subscription to, but were you trying to get press for the record? Were you finding the response was the same? 
same or different or what was the story there? What was the response? I don't know what the response was. I think there's like a Washington Post review of like our first single or something. I don't know. It was the same as always, like in terms of people not understanding what I was doing. <laughs> Rock critics. I mean, I feel like the, the concept of Flip and Fun, I love. I love the single, but the record left me a little cold. I could very well have missed something. And I also had a lot of records to listen to. So I didn't mm-hmm. get to sit with it as I normally would and listen to it a whole bunch of times. On the first side, the one that really stands out to me as, you know, a thing of greatness is uh, Ukraina. That's Nadal's song. She wrote the bass line. Yeah, it's amazing. And I love, on the second side, I love Odessa. It, like if I was your A&R guy, I would say release Odessa as a single. That would be my mm. choice as a single. I don't even know if A&R guys even exist anymore, but is Odessa yours? That might be Nadal's because it has a Ukrainian uh, related title. Okay. So it might be Nadal's because she's uh, of Ukrainian heritage. Okay. So were you eating a lot of pierogies around this time? I wish. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I wish for you. So Colgate was the rule breaker, right? That's the one where you're actually struggling towards. Yeah, right. I would have taken that one off, I think. that one. Really? I love it. I love it. Okay, good. All right. Tell me what I'm missing here. Because I know I'm missing something. What do you mean? And I'm curious what you were going for. Because there's a different energy on this record than there is Swift Current. And I I Hmm. feel like you're going for something a little different here. And I'm wondering how that deviated from the single, if at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's different. Well, it's different from the single in terms of it's the first time that songs that have been written with the bass guitar initially have vocals on them. I'm not really sure what else is going on. That's just kind of what came out. It was so quick. I think even when we did the single, I had been recording and writing and recording a lot of these songs on my four track. So it just so happened that the three songs we recorded were those three songs on the single, but we could have recorded one okay. of these. Oh, interesting. Okay, so this is all from the same well. Yeah, I mean, not except for Natal's songs, obviously, but yeah. What's the split? Is it just the two of you writing? It was similar, kind of a little bit like with the drums, Matt and I would actually just have sessions with us together and we'd kind of come up with drum beats together. And similarly to the Air Miami thing, I'd pick out some drum beat on a song that I liked and we'd throw it into this other song that sounds completely different and <laughs> nice. in a completely different context. Yeah. And Natal's is writing, I think she wrote two of the songs on here. What do you give this one? Like a 4.2 and a third. All right, I feel like a cock, but I'm, I'm going to give it two and a half stars. Sounds good. I'm going to go back and listen to it again because I feel like I'm missing something here because I love the concept of the band and I love a lot of the releases and and I got to spend more time with this one. So provisionally, it's a two and a half. All right. So August 16th, 1999. Boo Boo and Boo Boo Version. Now tell me about mm-hmm. Version, because I really like yeah. what you did. So there's, um, I can't, th- what they call them, dub plates or uh, just those reggae singles in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And you would buy the single and the A side is like the song and the B side is kind of like what they call a version, which is kind of like a remix with like extra delay or reverb and things like that. So for this record, somehow I had the idea that we're going to like remix and rearrange every single song on the record. So the CD has one set of mixes and versions and the LP has completely different versions. I think except for one, one song is, is exactly the same. Like there's Happy Adventure, I think is almost like very different sounding. Yeah. And Trinity. Um, Is Trinity different? Yeah. 
I think so. so I think so Trinity bought, version could have been a hit. And I also have this thing where, like, I've always thought about this is since the manufacturing process for a vinyl record and a compact disc is completely different. So why not make them complete? Like, why are you repeating yourself on two formats? Why not make the art different? Why not make the music different? Because no, like, no one wants to put that kind of time into it, probably. <laughs> right. Well, probably. Yeah. But why not? You know, I mean, I'm and glad I, you did because I prefer the version, the version version. Do you have a, a preference between the two? I don't know. I think I prefer the regular one, probably. I would say for me, the regular one, I would give two and three quarter stars and the version one, I would give three and a half. It feels livelier to me, but mm -hmm. that wouldn't necessarily be your criteria to judge it. But it feels like a livelier mix to, to me. It's wetter, fuller. And I also love the sequencing of the version okay. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Nice. Cool. I love this recording should be played at a volume comfortable for the listener. <laughs> you know, that's just a reaction to a lot of the records in the 80s. Play saying, loud. Like, Please play at loud, uh, full volume or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And especially um, during this time, there was the so-called volume wars. Everything was being mastered hotter and hotter. Right, right, right. Exactly. I love that. So I like this. This is recorded, the first record recorded on computer that I've done. And that was Trevor's idea. Trevor, later of Fang Wizard and Party Milk, recorded this and he has is this it? crazy idea that we would loop everything so when we recorded this we would only play one section for a few minutes and then he'd go in and like find a good loop and we then we would do the chorus part and he'd loop it and then when it, it was a nightmare when we came to when we had to mix it because we had to arrange it mm -hmm. so that was how we could do the remixes is because we could pull we could just pop parts out and pop them in but okay. getting the um the seams there was so many clicks in the seams that was the difficult part when i listen to your music as flimflon the mental image i get is all the interlocking parts of a swiss watch hmm. the way that they get it right every time and just the way that it locks together i can actually see these things turning in my mind when i hear you guys play yeah it's a really interesting band and i know there's more coming down the pike right i mean you haven't shut the door you made that explicit but i could definitely see you revisiting this yeah I think I like it more than you do, because I think I give an edge to this one over um, the AOK record. What do you give both versions? Are you able to rate both? Separately? Um, yeah. I would give, I guess the CD, I give it a 4.6, and I'll give the LP like a 4.4, something like that. Trevor often says that it was probably the first record recorded like that, which is probably true, where you're making loops of an analog band. <laughs> That had ever been attempted at all? That's that's my guess. I don't know. Is it this it the seems first? Like it's an insane idea. Okay, September 1999, you leave Virginia behind and move to an undisclosed area for the witness protection program. Now, moving to a different area, is that something that was tough on the business for the label, or is it any different operating out of your undisclosed new home of 24 years? Was it good for the business? I mean, I don't, I never thought of it as business, but yeah, it was less room because moved into a fairly small apartment, but there was a distributor down the street. So, you know, they sold some of our records. Oh, nice. um, surefire distribution. There was no longer a giant house with a big basement to store records in. So I did start working with a distributor in Chicago, Carrot Top, CTD, Carrot Top Distribution. And they thankfully like warehoused at least half of the records, which was great. Okay, so now welcome to the new century, my friend. Okay, this one is super interesting. August 21st, 2000, your solo EP, Taste. This mm. one is definitely a I'm going to do what I want to do here. Sure, yeah. 
I mean, it's supposed to be like punk, but with sine waves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got some fucking balls on you, man. I mean, this is like kind of pure nutsiness, creatively so fulfilling as a listener to hear you doing this. And, you know, I don't mind cutting this sentence out if you want me to. But the greatest thing to me conceptually about this is that I believe you were about to start a family. And here comes the craziest motherfucking idea you've yet had. Yeah, I guess so. I don't remember. I think this idea may have existed before I knew I was going to be a father. Okay. But once we get to the uh, solo albums, that's part of the story, definitely. Well, I love the narrative where you find out that you're going to be a dad and you immediately start delving into sine wave melody constructions. Uh, <laughs> right. But it's okay. Like that did happen, but I wasn't. that was a different project, but yes. Right, right. Well, look, there's the fact that I really like it, but even if I thought it was no good, just by sheer dint of it actually having come to pass and it being released and out there having a life in the world, I would still love it, but I'll give it four stars. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty proud of it, I suppose. I'll give it a 3.9 and three quarters. <laughs> Almost holding hands on that one. And I love how there's a review from Fake Jazz, which kicks off, Mark Robinson has balls the size of small farm animals. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like, I don't know, is it, I feel like it's not that big a deal. I feel like there's weirder records out there for sure. There are, yeah, there are, there are. <laughs> but, you know, those people who make those weird records typically aren't capable of writing earworm melodies. So that's the difference. Then Tiger Banana, you know what this point that you're going to be papa right so i find out that my life is going to change dramatically and that i won't have much time to do things so i am like frantically writing songs and <laughs> go into my friend james beluyat's house in brooklyn and spend a few days there and record tiger banana and then do the same thing over again write a lot more songs and go to my friend trevor's house a couple months later and do canada's green highway so i was just trying to get i was trying to do as much as i could before this big life-changing thing where I thought maybe I wouldn't have a lot of time. You're obviously psyched to be a dad. I don't have to ask you about that, but were you also... <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm not that old. Like I'm, I'm pretty yeah. young. So it was kind of like, what is going to, what is this going to be like? Do I want to do this? That kind of thing. Did you always want kids? Varying emotions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I did in theory, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it was because... great, but it was also like, you know, I feel like I know some people such as yourself or even my father actually who had kids at around age like 49, 50. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're at that age, you're like super into it. Right. But when you're like younger, the younger you are, I think the less excited you might be by the prospect. Yeah. You're also somebody who really knows how to fill his hours. <laughs> So have, and in retrospect, obviously I enjoyed being a father. I still am a father and it was great, but I don't know if I was like completely prepared for it, but maybe you never are and it just happens. I think I was telling people, um, a friend of mine was having a baby and they're like, well, what is it like? And I was like, it's incredible. Like you've never had this incredible high. And also simultaneously, it completely sucks. Yeah. And I, I stand by that, I think. And the older you get, the more difficult that becomes because even as you know with what you said it's true i mean you know i have my eyes trained on the changing of the seasons and mortality and stuff so having a kid coming along at you know i was in my 40s as mm -hmm. opposed to 20s i'm cognizant of how special it is but i'm so set in my ways there 
here's X, Y, and Z mm. that I have to do, none of which ultimately is important compared to him. You know, so th th that's tough. So with a guy like you, who's got like, you know, 17 different projects going at the same time, that definitely must have been a little challenging. Yeah, but I just, you know, obviously you retool and your project is feeding the kid and getting the kid to sleep instead of, you know, record writing a song or whatever. Yeah. And hey, you can still ascribe a teen beat number to a kid's breakfast. There's no rules about that. I could do um, it in retrospect. Yeah. So the Tiger Banana LP from the back cover of the, of the package, Mark Robinson presents us with a brand new collection of songs made with two guitars and his very own human voice entitled mm. Tiger Banana. This is his first proper solo album. Now, would you say mm. that's that's true? That says that on there? Yes. Okay. I stand by everything that it says. Two guitars. Sounds good. Okay. Talk to me about, is this then, is there like sort of a focus on the fact that your life's about to change lyrically or does that not even enter into the equation here? Wow. This is like right after Flin Flon. I don't know. There probably is some stuff on here. <laughs> so this is how it came off to me. It, it feels like you're vacillating in your approach between two distinct songwriting polarities here, but that there's an intimate sort of a downcast tone to it all that ties it together. Mm. Both the ballads and the anthems sound mm -hmm. depressed. The um, anthems, cool. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, that being said, the mood feels clear and not obfuscated behind any kind of studio trickery. A really impressive amount of great material on what the world, I guess, has deemed after 15 years of these things as your first official solo release. <laughs> Overall, I give this four stars. Wow, okay. Yeah, four stars. Are these stars? I thought there was just a rating. No, these are stars, man. <laughs> They're stars. Oh, wow. Yeah. This changes everything. <laughs> yeah, I am filled with stars, as Jenny Toomey once said. I thought it was decimals and fractions. Okay. <laughs> you could have decimals and fractions with stars. All right, so here's a few choice tracks that I really love. Volunteers Conquering Fires, uh, mm -hmm. Difficult Situations, Water Crashing In. Really, the whole second side is terrific. I love Starfighter, Full-Length Taffeta Gown, Putting Up Good Numbers. I'm naming all the songs here. And then Time of our lives again taken from the imperial descending riff well all right so talk to me about these songs in other words the context from which they're taken how do these songs what do they mean to you 23 years on wow is it that long <laughs> um yeah that makes sense because my son is almost that old what do they mean to me i think they think it's like a very intimate recording and i think the songs sound pretty intimate although the anthems are more anthemic fontaine and richard from verses helped me out on a couple songs i'm kind of Let's riffing off that quiet guitar stuff that i was doing maybe in a unrest and also kind of the minimalism from flin Flon. also i don't think we really touched on i don't think we did or maybe i didn't offer up anything the lyrics of Flin Flon are just kind of very abstract and sometimes meaningful, sometimes not. And I think that's kind of carrying over here. So yeah. I don't know, like difficult situations, it might've just been like, again, if I'm if I'm trying to come up with a vocal melody on my four track and I say some wor random words and then difficult situations somehow fits into the lyric, just kind mm -hmm. of sounded cool. So I don't know if I was actually talking about difficult situations, but I might have been. I just meant there's a certain kind of song that you start writing in the mid to late 90s that has a very intentionally lugubrious pacing to it, like mm. Maple Leaf, Difficult Situations, where it feels like something is going on with you. But because mm. your predilection for these, you know, obfuscating lyrics, you're never really able to put your finger on what quite it is. Mm -hmm. But Flin Flon, with regard to the lyrics, it definitely felt like you were doubling down on a lyric 
work style that I saw in you from many years past. It didn't feel anything different. Mm -hmm. I think just in upping the ante on what you had already been doing. Yeah, I think with Flin Flon, I think you're right. And I think I was just happier with the lyrics of Flin Flon than maybe previous things because I was maybe experienced enough to refine them so I wouldn't wince years from then listening to them. It's all about not wincing in the future. Right. It is. And uh, I'll go through anything. I'll put any totally unjustified amount of time into something to make sure that doesn't happen. But right. you were, I love your lyric style because I'm really not that much a lyrics guy. To me, you're trying to imprint the experience of your song onto me. So I experience it exactly mm -hmm. the same way as you. So your lyric style leaves so much to the imagination. It's a collaboration with the listener who then has to fill in the blanks. And also it leads in my particular case, to a tumbling over of texts and phone calls, trying to figure out who you are before the interview, mm -hmm. because you don't explain it in your songs. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Does, um, did Slint explain who they were in their songs? <laughs> or Pavement? Uh, much, much more so, I think. Okay. I, th I think more so. I mean, the fact that Brian McMahon checked himself into a sanitarium after recording, I can hear why that happened. I can hear it in the the music itself, in his anguished vocals, in what he's singing. And then as far as pavement, I may not know what Steven is feeling because he's he's obviously trying to stay one step ahead of the audience as well. Maybe not as well, but you know, he's at a remove at a distance. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I have more of a an understanding of possibly an errant understanding of who he is than for example, keep repeating, keep repeating is a great mm -hmm. lyric that tells me nothing about you. But mm -hmm. there could be no better lyric there. Right. I mean, I embraced the mysteriousness of those early 1980s records from England, where the covers were so minimal and sparse, and the band members' names were not even on the jacket, let alone lyric sheet. So I think there's something that I kind of took from that, like, bands are supposed to be mysterious, and that's cool. Yeah. And if you want to wear your heart on your sleeve, you can sing, like, Barry Manilow or somebody, who I also yeah. like. You like him? Yeah, I have his double album. Is it, I can't remember his greatest hits or whatever. I love Ready to Take a Chance Again. Yeah, he did um, American Bandstand theme song. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the Tiger Banana sister or brother LP, Canada's Green Highways. Hmm. So Henry Rollins, did you reach out to him four years ago when you read what an unbelievable fan he is of this? I mean, I already knew he was because okay. he's like an avid Teen Beat mail order customer person. Oh, really? That's so cool. I love that as a sort of antidote conceptually to how fucking hard he presents himself. <laughs> um, I love the Friar Tuck hat you're wearing on the cover, by the way. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would say between this and Tiger Banana, I prefer Tiger Banana just by a little bit, mm. but there's a lot of really good stuff on this. I would say it's really kind of splitting hairs because I love almost everything on here. I think the one that doesn't fit in is the last one, the Arlington Station. So I would take that off again. Maybe it's the thing with the last songs that I have a problem with. I always want to take the last song off. I love Arlington Station. Oh, I really cool. do. I feel like it's a goodbye to Virginia. It's one of the few songs where it's I can remember exactly what it's about. And it's about a very particular thing about my uncle passing away from leukemia oh, man. like very quickly mm -hmm. so i don't usually write songs like that but anyway there it is well i think you did a great bunch of work here there's a couple tunes that don't grab me that much dilated pupils lays too far back for me personally oh, what you like do you my, love that one i think that might be one of the, my favorites on the record yeah uh, there's a lot of really good stuff on this for me the songcraft is so incredibly apparent and strong inside too and i don't have a problem with arlington station at all this one cool. i give three and a half and what did you give the last one or 
what did I give four. the last one? I think I gave it 3.9 and 7 eighths. Yeah. No, no, no. We both gave it four. You see? Four? Yeah, we both four? gave it four. Yeah. Come on. You did. I got to roll the tape back. <laughs> I, I'm all in my decimal fraction. I think we should start from the beginning um, and do the whole thing. I'm going to give a uh, 4.4 and two thirds. Wow. So is there a big distinction between the two records for you? I'm just happy with both of them. Like a different vibe on both. I think just because of who recorded them and who was involved, Jimmy and Trevor. Some of these like dilated pupils or angels in waiting, it almost sounds like guitar versions of a Flynn Flon song or something like that. Yeah. Very mechanical and kind of cool. I don't know. I just like that one better a little bit. <laughs> September 9th, 2003, Origami and Urbanism. What's your favorite song on this one? So the titles, it's, it's hard to remember the titles on this one. The German edition and the American edition have completely different titles even though they're the same song. <laughs> there was this interesting thing at Calvin's studio. It was this gigantic kind of warehouse. And there was like a marching band coming down the street. And the just the drums are playing. And now you can hear that in the background of one of the tracks. So I kind of, I think I looped that or you can hear it. I don't know if that's Bye Bye Bunny Smith Square, but that might be my favorite. I love that song. That's your favorite song? I think so, maybe, yeah. I have three favorites. That's one of them. First of all, you know, it's kind of a callback to Perfect Teeth because it kicks off this really lugubriously paced six minute ballad. That's pretty fucking sad, especially for you. Your vocal is really diminished in the best possible way, kind of seeping through like a breathy whisper plus the brush drums which is just magnificent and spot-on accompaniment for this tune did you put it up front because you love the song or because of a challenging sequencing idea because this is a this is a throat slitter but i have a good alternate title for it by the way middle-aged suicide please do it <laughs> Again, since we're manufacturing in Germany and the U.S., totally different song titles. And I think it's a totally different sequence as well, just to keep myself entertained. Yeah. I love that one. And I really, really love Whippany Parsippany. <laughs> you know, I mean, especially being in New Jersey, this is like chum for me. Yeah, that's a good one, too. I like that. Yeah, yeah. And Hospital Bruiser is the other one. Mm -hmm. I fucking love it. Yeah, this one, ultimately, it feels pretty dejected. Don't know what mm -hmm. was happening around that time, but you sound bummed. Okay. Uh, but it's neither here nor there. I'm just trying to figure out contextually what was happening, but I'll give it three stars. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll give it like a 3.4 and six sevenths. <laughs> what is, oh, wow. Did you think I would be higher or lower? Oh, I don't know. You just, there's a precipitous drop. No, it's not precipitous. I mean, three in my mind is good. It means it's a good record. Oh, you know? shit. What's wrong? Are you recording audio on your end or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think we can have like 45 minutes? That sounds different. <laughs> I forgot. Remember, I turned it off when we took our break. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn the audio back on. It's okay. Sorry about that. I'm going to hit it no, hit no record now. By the way, this is officially the longest interview I've ever done now. <laughs> okay. It just, it's we're over, over the 13 hour mark now yeah it's over the 13 hour mark yeah so now okay so now we're recording okay cool so now it'll um, be a nice story it'll be like whoa what happened to the audio quality it's okay um, it's all right no one will ever know <laughs> hi i'm dave gebro i threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash sold my house and moved to the east coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive now i need your help although 
Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now, every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discography's Patreon family, the Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personalized backstage pass for a buck. And for the cheapskates, homeless people, and all the bums sponging off mom and dad, don't care, just join. It's now completely free to join as a basic member, and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming Lou Barlow, Corey Hansen, Mark Robinson comp Metal Machine Muzak, as well as the triple album rock opera El Farmony I created with Joe Kennedy as the mentally regarded and the ability to purchase one-off Patreon episodes. That's it. Back to the show. July 5th, 2004, you release a single, Babe Rainbow, backed with, I'm not going to, I, I got it so wrong. Will you do it for me? Stuttgart. Stuttgart. Stuttgart, please, please. Yeah. So this is the first in Tom Lab's Alphabet 7-inch vinyl 45 series, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. This was a shock to me. This is actually one of my favorite Mark Robinson releases of all time. It's a wow. perfect single that captures the pure rock power of solo Mark versus the intensely vulnerable and unbelievably essential B-side, which I think is one of your very best songs and possibly your most emotionally affecting song of all time. I mean, it right. really, really took me by surprise. So let's talk about Babe Rainbow first. Yeah, talk to me at the, about the derivation of the whole thing. I mean, I think it mostly came into be because Tom and Jan from Tom Lab in Cologne, Germany, came up with this amazing idea to do 26 singles. I think they even did more than that, actually. And somehow I was chosen as the number one single, the A single. So I just had to come up with two songs. I mean, it was there's really not too much to tell, but I had Trevor, again, love recording with Trevor. So I recorded the A side with him, Babe Rainbow. And then for the other one, I just recorded it at home and just like very minimal pieces. And I sent it to this guy, Enrico in Dresden who records under the name Flim, which is like film, but F-L-I-M. And he just put the whole thing together and he did such a good job with it. And I think, so, yeah, that, that I do have that voice crack in there so I can see what you're saying. It's like Yeah, holy shit. That, that yeah. moment is unbelievable. That moment where you launch up into your falsetto, it's almost unbearably beautiful. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking this is a guy who looks at his kids and just starts crying just based on this. Because <laughs> that's, that's me. You know, that's the way that I am. But I don't know, you know, if this was something you just wrote super quick and it has less meaning than what I'm investing into it. But one thing I really love about this single is that there's a lo-fi aspect to it because you've been creating these records with very clean lined contours, I think as a direct result of your design profession. So everything was super clean as it should. There's no reason for you to purposely go sloppy. But then Trevor produced only the B. Is he just producing the, Stuttgart? I think it's the A, I think it's the a side. Oh, no, the A side. The, uh, Babe Rainbow, the faster one. Okay, yeah, which is just a perfect aesthetic choice, if that was a choice on his part, to rough up the sound a little bit. Hmm, I don't know. I 
think, I might be mistaken, because I don't have the original files, which I think I told you. The version that both of us have heard, I heard it off of the record, and the version that you heard was me holding my phone, recording it off my record. So I think there might be some sizzle in there that might not be oh, on the original okay. recording. You're literally holding your phone up? Yeah. So I didn't even do it direct or whatever. I mean, you're probably you're also hearing the room sound of the, the room that was playing the record in on top of... Yeah, yeah. Are you like a total sweetie patootie kind of dude, though? Because this what this on earth does that mean? Because <laughs> this song, the the B side here, is not something that I would assume you would write unless you had like a really easily triggered, beautiful urge to cry at all the beautiful gifts and wonderful things in your life, that kind of thing. Hmm. You know, I know that I am certainly as someone in their early 50s, as opposed to a younger man, I'm much more apt to stop and just start crying. But maybe the last song I've heard you kind of crack open this type of locked door is Decca, mm -hmm. which or, we were thereabouts. Couldn't figure out the lyrics to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, it's emotional in the same way. Maybe abstractly emotional, perhaps. Are you an emotional guy? Yeah, of course, like most people. No, outwardly. <laughs> outwardly emotional? Yeah. Yeah, you don't know. Oh, uh, that's a no. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, what do you give this? What did you give it? You, you always rate it first. That's a, that's a hard five, man. Yeah, I think it's all right. I'll give it a 4.6 and a quarter. It's almost like as good as Swift Current and Airplane Rider. The band never came later, though. Maybe it was Fang Wizard. I don't know. Yeah, this does have a similar kind of thing, except it doesn't kickstart or summarize a project in the same way, unless right. you're talking right. about Fang Wizard. Right. Babe Rambo is not, you wouldn't consider that under the rubric of Fang Wizard, right? No, I mean, well, Fang Wizard for, all, for also, which is something we haven't talked about yet, is primarily instrumental. Yeah. All right. So then there's a live record that came out in September 2009, Teen Beat mm -hmm. 469, but was recorded February 24th, 2005 in Washington, D.C. So is what happened, maybe it's Reno recording sessions, and then you got together and played a gig or a few gigs? You mean the 2005 on Rush shows? Yeah, show, I know. I should say. I, I know it I celebrated think, the 20th anniversary of the Team Beat label, but yeah, which must have been the, um, grueling for you to celebrate that round number. <laughs> Maybe it's Reno came after that unrushed Team Beat show. Okay. So that, that was probably prompted by the playing together again. And then Bridget wanted to... Well, originally, are we talking about Maybe It's Reno now or what's going on? No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. All right. Because that doesn't come next. It's 2008. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm so, not rating yeah. that. I'm not ready. That's a live album, my friend. Cool. You're not getting jack shit out of me on that one. Snow but, Kiss um, Alive, that's for sure. <laughs> that's because you didn't have Eddie Kramer re-recording every single instrument. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love all the live records you guys did. So March 25 stars. March 21st, 2006, <laughs> you have Flynn Flon's Dixie and Dixie version. Oh. Yeah. So I'm not going to do like a totally different arc breakdown for each band, but Flynn Flon's got this interesting thing for me where the first single was this perfect thing that summed up what seems to me anyway, the band's aesthetic. And then as the records go on, they get better and better for me. Wow. So by the time That's it cool. gets to Dixie, I'm really loving it. And I'm loving wow. pretty much every fucking song. That's awesome. That's my experience with it. So looking back, what's your take on Dixie? It was very difficult to record. We also lived in different 
places at that point, but it was just, um, it wasn't as focused with the recording. So we went in, I think we just did the drums at one studio and then we started tracking the guitar and the bass with Trevor. And we also had the idea after wanting everything so dry on Boo Boo, we're like, okay, well, we'll let the engineer, Andy Hong, give us like a room sound. Then once we started tracking and mixing, we're like, oh shoot, we can't, we can't change that decision now. Right. But it's, you know, in some tracks, it, it's, I mean, it definitely sounds good and it sounds different, but it was kind of a difficult, it was just, it was kind of like the first Unrest LP where it just took a lot of remixing and re-recording things to get it to where I liked it enough to release it. And I should also say that Tom Lab was going to release this record, but was unhappy with it. And so they did not release huh. it. Wow. So maybe maybe that kind of tainted my outlook on it. That's so bit. funny hearing you talk about all that, because what I hear is a tremendously inspired effort. And in my opinion, it's your best Flynn Flon record. It's the platonic ideal, aside from Swift Current, the platonic ideal of that style mm-hmm. you'd been pursuing for a decade. And so to me, it feels like you perfected it. And then you moved on because there was nothing else left to do as a result of hitting the nail so squarely on the head. And I'm wow. guessing that's a totally incorrect assumption. I don't know. I mean, if that's that's your opinion, that's great. I mean, yeah, I'm but glad that you like it. It's an erroneous opinion. Uh, what do you mean erroneous? But, but you said we hit the nail on the head and we did all that stuff. So maybe that's what we did, right? It is what you did for me, for sure. I yeah, love that. Right. I love this record. So, There's yeah. also, I think you know, in order to suss out any of the subjectivity involved with how I feel about Flin Flon, I don't as much prefer the really super slow stuff that you mm-hmm. that you do with Flin Flon. And mm-hmm. Dixie is informed with the most unrest-like energy of any of your releases since okay. like the mid-90s. And right. Swift Current has that energy too. It does feel more human and less mechanical in parts than yeah. the first two records do. Yeah. Which isn't a um, positive or negative because to one person saying it's more human, they're like, fuck that, that's not for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I'm actually saying that it's kind of a negative. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, in like, the Flynn you know, aesthetic. Yeah, because, you know, the Gang of Four wire aspect, the energy is not necessarily a good thing for it, if you're in it for that reason. But for me, I give Dixie four and a half stars, and I think it's fantastic. Wow, cool. I'm going to give it a 3.2 and one-fifth. 3.2 and one-fifth? Yeah, but I'm really happy. It's it's, uh, heartwarming to think that someone thinks that's our best thing. You know, it's funny. All of the roller coaster bullshit that you went through, none of it reads for me. I'm not picking that Mm -hmm. stuff up. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's good. I would actually think if you had told me that related to AOK, I would have said, yeah, I could I could see that, but not here. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So then, of course, there's a version version, and yeah. then it's Hello Cotton Candy. Cotton Candy <laughs> is Mark Robinson and Evelyn Hurley. They perform a potpourri of genres from indie pop to electronic pop to hard rock. They also show off their advertising jingle chops with covers of rare radio and TV commercials. And the two of you also run the Teen Beat label. Now, in terms of advertising jingles, that is basically what you've turned into. I mean, the progression of the band. Mm-hmm. Do you do any self-generated material anymore? We occasionally will do self-generated singles. I mean, uh, jingles so or singles jingle, of jingles j- jingles and <laughs> singles and jingles so but no we don't play any of these songs so I, like the first seven inch and the lp 
are almost more like me putting it together, make me writing the songs, and they're almost like Mark solo records. I know we're not we're not there yet, but like the cassette off the hook and out of control mm-hmm. is more of a group project. Okay, so this specifically is just you. Is what you're saying? I mean, like the, like the album or whatever, like the songs. I mean, yeah. Okay. Like that one song was an old Mark Robinson song that we repurposed or whatever. So I had no prior knowledge that there was a cotton candy. And these four souvenir albums were made to sell at four different cotton candy performances in 2008. Mm-hmm. What exactly does that mean? These four well, souvenir there was four albums? versions of it. So. Oh, I see. Okay. So Ava and I would like sing these songs together and make studio recordings. And these are like real regular songs. And we just would sell them like CDRs. Right. I'd make a few of them and we'd sell them at a show. So each show had a different version of that. I would make it different every show for some reason. Did you do mail order with this too? I don't think so. So this is just a souvenir album is literally just it shows? I believe so, yeah. That's wild to me, man. Right, because there's only, what, eight made, 11 made? I might have sold them on the on the website. Yeah, because this remember. is really fucking strong. I, I really like it. Thanks. It's excellent. All of the songs are great. There's, I guess, four actual songs. Invisible Kisses, A Sentimental Song, Fantastic and Spectacular, and Under the Command? Or is there more than that? I think so, yeah. No, I think that's it. Every single one is great. Every single one. I love the aesthetic. I couldn't believe how warm, especially after Flint Flum, but you you know, like all the greats, every Mm -hmm. album is a dialogue with the one that preceded it. So Mm -hmm. we're going from, by your own admission, a sort of robotic mechanical thing that gets humanized by the end and then goes Mm -hmm. into you probably your most human band wow okay right i mean it's a home-baked effort way more human than the flin flan albums <laughs> yeah well i mean but then you gotta define what that even means because everyone's gonna have their own capacity to interpret that differently but leading up to this there were so many records that were you know in a very interesting and appealing way but still always interesting aesthetic exercises that sometimes would sometimes wouldn't connect with me on an emotional level which is neither Mm -hmm. here nor there because they're not always meant to here that is at least what it comes across to my ears is like a really compact and really beautiful document of the space that i'm assuming the two of you have created for yourselves to inhabit and every song is totally precious and it's easily one of my favorite of your latter day releases that makes it amazing to me to think it's you know a 13 minutes and b there's a total of in the four pressings 42 cds made yeah (laughs) this is a great release man what do you give this gosh yeah it's all right um let's go to 4.1 and three quarters i just i love how warm it is it's very very warm and inviting and it's Hmm. so cool to check in on somebody that i've been listening to for so long and hear them a inspired be happy and having like a really finished sounding aesthetic enveloping even just a tour only release good stuff man and then thanks let's talk about 2008 so 2008 is hello goodbye aloha for maybe it's reno which is the sole album and it's really a bridget cross record that somehow wound up being an unresty type of a reunion and when i say unresty what i mean is just unrest because this record mm-hmm. is 10 songs, tracks one through seven are unrest, and then eight through 10 
are Bridget with her husband and Jordan Strudel on drums. Her husband is George Kuhar. Mm-hmm. Oh, hi, Dave again. I got to tell you about the next tier. As a lieutenant, you get an ad-free, substantially elongated director's cut of every episode. And you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on. And now back to our expertly crafted program. We did that Unrest show, the Teen Beat anniversary show in 2005. And it kind of got Bridget, I guess, thinking that she wanted to do a, like a solo thing. The show was in February. She came here in December of 2005. And we recorded like a whole record or, or it's seven of those songs right here in this room, actually. Oh, really? Um, so uh, how long did that take? Like a day or two, <laughs> maybe two. It's um, unbelievable. It's incredible that, you know, you're not in a studio, but yet studio costs must be so drilled in you by this point that even when you're recording on your own dime in your room, is it just that, <laughs> is it like we got to hurry was, up? I think, well, maybe that's just the way we were used to doing it, but, right. you know, she was rehearsed and she knew the songs, so it just didn't take very long. Like, I think it was bass, like she wrote on the bass, because that's her... That was her primary like rock instrument. We used a drum machine, same drum machine that we used on the Air Miami records and the Air Miami demos that I have. It's like an old rhythm ace from the 1960s. And then she did the vocals like right over here. We put up a mattress to kind of deaden the sound in here. So she sang into the mattress, sang all the songs. And then she decided she wanted a, what's it called? A Fender Rhodes piano. Yeah. So yeah. we went out in like the middle of a, I think it was, it was snowing. We like went out and we like found, there was like a piano rental place and we picked the thing up and it was super heavy and we like brought it in here we put it right over here and she played a lot of uh, fender roads i think i did too so that was a lot of fun and i remember there was a snowstorm it was a lightning snowstorm which was kind of unusual was going on during the recording you know so we did that and then a few months later she said you know i really want phil to play on this like i'm not sure i like these drum machine as the final thing so then Phil came here and we actually went into a studio to do that, the drums. So that was, that was a little difficult because it's hard to do the drums like after the fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually, yeah. yeah, you usually do the drums first. So that's an interesting challenge. Was that hard for Phil to do that? I'm sure it was a little hard. I mean, we did have the drum machine in there, but yeah, I'm sure it's not the easiest thing in the world. And at that studio, they had a Mellotron. And so yeah. again, we just can't keep yeah, they off did. the Mellotrons. No, you couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> And just in time for a brand new aesthetic where there's not just the coda, but there's the intro. So you have a coda in the front of the song, too. Not everyone, but I love that that's kind of a style you adopt for a record. Is like the song is the Oreo cream, and then the Mm -hmm. sandwiches are these sprawling (laughs) instrumental sections, which is so cool. Because then if there's like some spaz who's going to, you know, level accusations of bringing on rest back, you can say... Well, look, we're writing songs in a completely different manner, so you're a fool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just one after the other. Everything is amazing on this. It's a really powerful record. It's different than the kind of material that you've done. I mean, there's nothing really that's like this in your discography. And then the mm-hmm. coolest thing about this whole record to me is once the unrest stuff is done, I figured my interest level would abate a little bit because, I mean, I was so psyched to hear this. I'd never heard it before. Didn't even know about it. I was so psyched that I went out of chronological order. And this is the one I left for the end. So after, what, 100 records or something? This is the (laughs) one at the end. I spent a lot of time with it. And the magic trick of it is the stuff she does with her husband, tracks 8, 9, and 10, 
are just as amazing and they're different mm -hmm. and it's totally. a great capper to the record because there's a certain amount of energy that's doled out for the first seven that is way ramped up for the end which brings it to an organic finish and utilizes the strengths of both outfits totally agreed so did it come up once for you guys to get together as unrest and to do more music or no i mean we did that was maybe it's reno right that was what that was maybe it's reno with bridget writing all the songs right it was kind of but kind of unrest right it was kind of unrest yeah look i'm not trying to be a douche focusing on the efforts of your very first band and saying that you know you're, you're hearing the numbers that i'm giving all these other outfits you're doing incredible work now but are you that anti-nostalgic that you're not interested in hearing what an unrest in 2023 would sound like you're talking about writing a new material yeah yeah yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would sound, well, maybe Serena was an example of what that might sound like, I suppose. And it's so good. So good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to let that hang in the air for a second, like a fart. All right, so, <laughs> all right. Uh, this is four and a third for me. What do you give this one? I give it 4.6 and two thirds. Were you good at well algebra? Done, Bridget. Yeah, really good well at done. algebra? I don't know. I mean, I th think I passed algebra class. <laughs> <laughs> tried to relearn it when my son needed help and i was like oh this is kind of like completely had forgotten it by the time i was <laughs> yeah. revisiting algebra and then kind of doing it and i was like oh this is kind of like a sudoku puzzle or something like that right right maybe i'll get back into it do you think that an unrest reunion will never happen uh it did happen in 2005 and then it happened in 2010 as well i mean where you guys are you know not pavement where you're going around and doing a valedictory run but trying to find out as a valid concern what you guys would actually sound like now i haven't really thought about it too much but we did it with maybe it's reno maybe we'll do it with some other thing probably have a different name I mean, we live on opposite sides of continents. That doesn't stop anyone these days. Nobody even oh. leaves their house. I see. Right. Do you, do you leave your house ever? I do. You do? I don't understand why, but do you read your own press? Do you read reviews of your records? Sure. Yeah. Does it piss you off when people are, you know, referring to unrest when clearly that's a band that's had its time in the sun like a long time ago and you're on to way other things? Uh, no, I think it's fine. I mean, that's the obvious thing to compare it to, I guess, right? Yeah. When we did our first unrest press sheet, I guess it was when we did the album or our single or something, we collected all of our reviews. And I'd say at least 50%, if not more, were like pretty scathing, like really bad reviews. And we just stuck all the bad reviews on the sheet. Does that, it doesn't bother you at all, that kind of thing? Oh, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget the day that my last film came out. There was a review in the New York Times because it was out in the theater and I was crying hysterically. You know how much work goes into a film? You're a filmmaker. So by the time you're done, you're so spent and anything besides it's a masterpiece sounds like they're trying to set fire to your soul. For me anyway, apparently not for you because you put them up for sport, the bad ones. But I remember I called John Landis, who's kind of an unofficial executive producer on it. And he just started yelling at me to shut the fuck up. He was like, I've never gotten a good review in my life. <clears throat> they actually singled out my direction and my writing. But I don't have thick skin when it comes to that kind of thing, or at least I didn't. Mm -hmm. It's good to hear you don't give a shit about that. Well, yeah, there's been so many, so many records. So there's so many reviews. So it's like, what are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So you just keep releasing records to make the sting of particular reviews. Yeah, that's the only reason I release records in that <laughs> hopes of one day I'll get a positive review. I'm going to be out there to please the critics. My several hundred five-star ratings don't count, I guess. <laughs> All right, so Cotton Candy, we are back in the ring. May 5th, 2009, the fantastic and spectacular single, which is fantastic. And on this thing, you start to do some jingles along with the singles. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we had been playing live shows and it was not like Flin Flon where it was like, we're going to write songs on the bass guitar or we're not going to have cymbals or we're going to do this and that. It was kind of like anything. So it just kind of organically happened. And we were just like, we like commercial jingles. So why don't we sing some of those at our shows? And singing commercial jingles, well, first of all, a lot of them are like well-crafted songs yeah. you know, by like real people who wrote real songs. Like when we would play live shows, we would play the regular songs and it just seems so boring playing your own song for like four minutes that no one's ever heard. And then you'd come out with a jingle and people are like, what is going on? and it just has such an immediate reaction that it's kind of more fun doing that so we kind of started putting those on the records too yeah that's really cool i love your let it be low and brow take that oh thank you that's awesome fantastic and spectacular kind of has like a really sweet twist on the you know the right hand drum style that i love so much that you do and the whole thing just feels like the way candy tastes uh it's <laughs> nice it's just got all these production touches which are truly like those candy buttons you eat off the paper it's great i give this one four stars yeah wow that's nice this is not charity yeah, you work I'll hard give, for i'll that. give it a 3.9 and eight ninths <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is, like I said, this is not charity. This is, uh, you know, I set myself up for something really fucked up because I knew some of your work so well. I never agree to a hot seat episode unless I know I'd love the person who made the music or else it would be needlessly mortifying for myself. Okay. Is, that, but, is that what this episode is cataloged as? A hot seat episode? Yeah, that's kind of what I... Because it feels like head. it. No, no, this is a celebration. I'm joking. This is a celebration. Know. You know that. All right. <laughs> February 23rd, 2010, Cotton Candy's Top Notch and First Rate, your debut record. So is this songs written by the whole band? Or I should um, say, is it you and Evelyn? Or is it just you? It's mostly just me. I'm just recording and then I'm having her come in and sing on them. But we're also, okay. as you can see, like the jingles are there. And that's a lot of, a lot of that is Evelyn. Okay. I mean, she should be like a professor of jingleology somewhere because <laughs> she remembers every single one of them. Was there a discussion that you guys had about, you know what, let's jettison some of the original material so we can focus on these jingles? I mean, it kind of is evolving from that, like from the start, yeah. from that, that first EP, the CD thing where there was only 40 copies. It's kind of evolving towards what it is now which is just weird stuff a lot of jingles yeah. but also just other weird acapella things that we do like robert ashley operas and things like that what was the, the snippet of kate blanchett at this art art installation just like weird things that we just throw into the set that we haven't even we don't really haven't really recorded because now we're essentially just a live a live act so are you making music that you're selling at the shows for that or no we will sell the 2012 album yeah we sometimes all bring these records to the shows and at least with <laughs> like this album that's kind of deceiving because we're not do we're not really sounding like that although there are, are some jingles right. on there so 
But this is so, another one where I, I recorded it myself and like mixed it and everything. Is this one day as well? It seems like it would be a lot longer. No, when you do it by yourself, it takes forever. Yeah. Hot Wieners feels like, Hot Wieners all the way, I should say. Mm. Uh, it feels like this is just a song you had and you incorporated into this project. Is that what happened or did you write it for Cotton Candy? Because at four minutes and 30 seconds, you could fit 17 other Cotton Candy tracks. Into <laughs> I know, right? It's like a waste of space there. <laughs> yeah, it is. No, I think I wrote it for that. I mean, I wrote it for something. I, I definitely wrote it in that period. It wasn't like an existing thing, I don't think. It was just kind of funny. I think with these songs, I'm kind of going back to that kind of funny angle that I like to touch on, that humorous aspect. Yeah, but the context, it's not at risk of hijacking energy from another concept. The whole thing is all in on that. You know, overall, I think the charm of this particular project, it overtakes the sections that don't do it for me because of feeling <laughs> a little bit insubstantial or what have you. But even when the material for Cotton Candy feels totally tossed off it's always still so charming and winningly performed that you have me the whole way through so you know the vibe here is streaked through with bubblegum and it feels totally heartfelt i love it it's a great debut record and you know i'm imagining it's consciously just on this side of being a dr demento sort of thing <laughs> i which i love i'll give this four mm -hmm. stars okay yeah i'll give it a four and one fifteenth star. One fifteenth. Mm -hmm. No need for a, a decimal when you get a one fifteenth. Hello, Fang Wizard. Fang Wizard is a two-man. <laughs> so when you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our slag-off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Fang Wizard's a two-man band featuring Mark R. and Trevor Campman, who records under the moniker Holland. Am I pronouncing that right? Or is it sure something are. weird? Okay. Yeah. All right, we're getting close to the present moment. And the big surprise of this show is that I'm going to keep going and talk to you about records that you've never Ooh. done and how great they are. I can't wait to hear all about them. I can't wait to find out about them. So Fang Wizard, you guys are shapeshifters mm -hmm. <clears throat> with every track. Forget about every album. Description, we wanted to introduce you to Party Milk, nay, Fang Wizard, an electric, mm -hmm. eclectic, and electrifying duo from Washington, D.C. Their unique lyricless instrumentals are created by combining old school melodies with futuristic beats and bizarre fractured howls. Fang Wizard's creative process is completely spontaneous and organic with no planning or premeditation. They simply hit the record button and see what happens, resulting in a true collaboration of sound. Which, by the way, that could be a descriptor for every single band you've ever been in. September 27, 2011, the Fang Wizard debut 7-inch Fink Beverage 45. Oh, right. I don't think we did a 7-inch, but we did a um It's not a 7-inch? It is, it is a single, but yeah, it's a cassette. Oh, okay. I love this single, man. 
It's so good. Oh, wow. Okay, let's talk about both of them separately. Fink Beverage has this noy like motoric lilt to it. But of course, with the sheen of your arpeggios coursing through it like a mountain stream, the synth is super stereo labby. Mm. At least that's how it feels to me. Or the preset. The whole thing could have been 45 minutes long and it wouldn't really be enough. Um, wow. Immediately, I love this band. Awesome. And then Moscow Syrup, a lot more experimental but without letting go of the grasp of melody. It reminds me of, have you ever heard the Beatles offcut, What's the New Mary Jane? I'm not sure. It was a psychedelic opus, kind of like if I Am the Walrus was drained of any portent or meaning, but just to okay. like straight up weirdness, just freaking out on acid kind of thing. Wow. Um, and for whatever reason, it wasn't released, even though it's totally incredible. This huh. reminds me of that. It's weird. Cool. Is there a typical way that you guys get to work you and trevor or no rules whatsoever doesn't matter who starts recording that kind of thing how do you yeah we usually it? switch off so it's like uh we hit record and one of us will pick up an instrument and kind of come up with something and for like maybe a minute or two and then stop the recording and then we go in and we find loops so we'll find little segments and then we loop those and then the other person will go in and play on top of that loop and then back and forth. And we can use whatever instrument is in his studio. Does he have a crazy collection? No, it's like pretty bare bones selection of things. <laughs> one or two keyboards and like one guitar, one bass, one drum set. I feel like you could just do this for the rest of your life and be perfectly happy. Sure. That's probably just what I will do. <laughs> I mean, is there anything that trumps spontaneous creation of any sort whatsoever? I mean, is, is there anything that's more pleasing to you? I mean, it's a lot of fun, certainly. I remember writing like Kath Carroll and writing the song and then recording it on my guitar and then doing it on the four track and then bringing it to the band and then having the band learn it and then playing it live and then maybe recording it and then playing it live some more and then recording it again for the album. And with this project, it's pretty much we're done and like... I think we rarely go over an hour for each song. It's usually, try to keep it to like 45 minutes. If we keep going too long, it means we're thinking too much and uh, try to shut that down and move on to the next thing. You know, it's nice and immediate in that way. This one is, it's five stars for me. I really, really love this single. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I'll give it a 4.4 .4 and uh, an eighth. Okay, November 11th, 2011, you guys put out your debut LP, Pure Hex. Seven years in the making, is that correct? Yeah, because it was started recording at that time when we were going to record my solo record. So in 2004, yeah. So we would meet like every six months or so. We'd get together and record something. I love that it's seven years in the making, even though your songs from Soup to Nuts, there's a written-in mandate that it's 45 minutes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Our sessions are usually five or six songs, and Trevor mm -hmm. wants to just do them and then just upload them immediately. Oh, that's cool. To have like an instant release. So we might do that next. That's a great idea. What do you think about this record? Did you hit the nail on the head? Did you say what you wanted to say? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love Thanks. this act. Thank you. And it feels like a crystallization of your desires, having turned your back on what was expected of you in the mid-90s. Hmm. This mm -hmm. is a crystallization of, you know, recording something for the first time all the time. What better outlet for you than Fang Wizard, right? Agreed. I mean, you create this way in any and all of your acts, but this is process forward. 
It's a very process-forward band in the same way that Flin Flon is or was. Right, right. But very wisely, with regard to touching the cockles of my own heart, Pure Hex, the title track, is pure strum right out of the gate. So you own mm -hmm. me from the very beginning. <laughs> right. I love the title track. Somehow it's both heartbreaking and triumphant. It's one of my favorite songs by you in this century. And then the whole thing, there's almost nothing that doesn't kick me in the ass. It's a great record, man. Yeah, um, thank you. Is this how you want these records to sound, or do you want them all to explore disparate areas with no overlap? I mean, ideally, every track or song will be completely different than the other. I don't know if we've accomplished that yet, but on the next record that we'll talk about <laughs> from this project, you know, there's a little bit of vocals on it. And for the fourth iteration, which the third one hasn't even come out yet, but the fourth iteration, we're experimenting with guest performers and vocals and things like that. So we're just trying to keep wow. on making everything new and, and fresh and different. People are always asking me, like, why are you not in a band where you're playing guitar and there's someone playing bass and someone playing drums. And I'm always thinking, like, I've already done that. I've done enough of that. Yeah. Who the so fuck asked do, you that? Do different things. Oh, people say. Yeah. <laughs> people ask me. Just tell them to talk to me first, okay? <laughs> the one thing I would say is that you have some material that ends up on the extreme end of experimentalist. I feel like some of that stuff calls more attention to it than acts as an organic link through all the tracks on that one record. In other words, like, if some of that mm -hmm. stuff was siphoned off into its own island of fucked up weirdness. I feel like it would exist more comfortably in its own brethren sort of thing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm referring to Flunk Marshmallow. Yeah, I should preface this by saying with a lot of my material, and especially mm -hmm. this project, I barely know any of the song titles. Because when they're instrumental, first of all. <laughs> but you got a great song title in Bloodweiser. That's a great song title. Do these ring a bell, these titles? Probably no, not. is this all from one thing? They're all wacky packs. You remember wacky packages? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Of course I yeah. do. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was the first job I got was to be able to afford those. I had a paper oh, wow. route. Yeah, <laughs> nice. yeah. I love these. And Which paper? Star Ledger or? Uh... Star Ledger, Star Ledger. Yeah. So I started dating a girl in the late 90s and her dad fucking invented Wacky Pack. I could not believe Whoa. it. And when I met him, I was kind of like nervous. The first couple of sessions of my life were Welcome Back Cotter and Wacky Pack stickers. <laughs> and uh, did you have sticker books too? No, I would stick them on uh, things. I had like a suitcase okay. I stuck Wacky Packs on. <laughs> it was the best. It was better than Garbage Pail Kids and everything that came after. Wow, that is cool. Yeah, so those songs and Paul Mall, there's mm -hmm. a few on there that really leap out because they're so fucking weird and anyway it's neither here nor there i'm driving toward a point that's like a dead end at the end of a side road because we've been on the line now for six hours and five minutes um, <laughs> that's just right, this so, session <laughs> that's just this session yeah. this is the longest single session though that i've ever had with anybody so i love this i will give it four and a quarter stars thank you i will give it four and a quarter that's what you said yeah uh, yeah, I'm going to match your four and a quarter. I'm going to change my rating to four uh -oh. and a quarter and one eighth. Damn it. All right. You outdid me. <laughs> Why don't you just come see me there at four and a quarter? I'm going to raise you <laughs> for <laughs> three quarters. <laughs> nice. All right. Fantastic. So now December 12th, 2012, the next Cotton Candy LP comes out called Off the Hook and Out of Control. So this is 
44 songs written by the band and songs written by others as well. This was a co-release between Teen Beat and Dog Days tapes. There's no actual conversation that has preceded your transmogrification into a mainly jingle playing act, right? It just happened. And then I think also we would get to the shows on bicycles. So bringing the guitar. I think we went from electric with an amp and electric guitar. Just that was the only instrument in the band. And then to acoustic guitar and then to just nothing because it's easier. So now we're just acapella. It's great. I love it. So when we show, like, people will say, like, oh, you got, you know, sound checks at 630. And they're like, yeah, we don't need sound check. Right. We, we, we just need to get there, like, two minutes before we go on. And then we can, we're so well rehearsed, we can just bang it. As an actual document, I would have to say that I don't feel as passionately about this one as the other ones. Because there's so many bits. Bits meaning just, like, tiny pieces. I don't really have talons, but can't really sink my talons into, <laughs> sure. into that material. It's fun. It's a hell of a lot of fun. I'm guessing it's more primarily intended as a live experience because I can imagine this being an absolute blast live. But as music, just for me, it goes down a little bit like Chinese food. I immediately (laughs) want to hear some Mark Robinson without having realized that I just heard some Mark Robinson. So a rock solid conceptual angle, but it doesn't uh, have a presence as much for me as the other work. So this one I'll give two and a quarter. Okay. I'll give it a three and a quarter. So this is a little bit lower for you too. Why? Well, just because it's, you know, like you said, it's uneven. I think there's, um, was it like 15 remixes of that one song that was done for like a a commercial? Which actually (laughs) I love. Yeah. The doodle's fucking excellent. Right. And weirdly, again, just like with maybe it's Reno, I'm thinking, oh shit, he jammed a bunch of stuff at the end there. And then it becomes one of the main selling points of the record for me. Mm -hmm. That's always a surprise with your stuff. It's like the bonus tracks are mandatory. Right. So that one was actually interestingly written for a commercial, which is kind of ironic given the commercial jingles that we're doing. I love Light Bright. I love the toy, but I love the <laughs> the jingle better than the toy even. I wish this was like a three-minute song. Love your take on it. So October 20th, 2014, Stowe. This is a film series. And well, why don't you describe what's going on with this project? I think I just always have had a fascination with retail stores. And there was a store called Weirdo Records in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The owner, Angela Sawyer, just had a great aesthetic and just like decorated this place amazingly well. And there was just similar places like that. And I just thought it would be great to kind of document them because I was always, I guess, I've always wanted to have my own store, but also just wanted to document these great places like uh, Irving's Toy Shop, which was run by Ethel Weiss, who I think when I visited her was 100 years old. And she was like showing me like the letter she got from Barack Obama, because I guess whoever the president is will send a letter to every centurion. And that store was incredible. It had been there since like the 50s. And like there was so much inventory that had just been sitting there and getting dusty. Where is that? That's in Boston, right? Brookline. Brookline, okay. It's not there anymore. What's your favorite store in that area? Probably Deep Thoughts, I guess, at this point. That's in one of the movies, too. Weirdo Records and Irving's Toy Shop are gone. Do you know offhand if Jack's Joke Shop is still there? No. 
Is it gone? There is like a fragment of it in uh, Fort Point. There's some sort of store. It's like a welding supply store. And somehow Jack's Joke Shop is inside that store. Oh, no way. Like a CBGB being in Vegas or something? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really odd because I don't know how they became the inheritors of that. But they have the Jack's Joke Shop sign outside right underneath the welding. They have some really cool welding hats there, too. (laughs) I have to go back there. So I used to, for many years, many years, my picture as a 12-year-old was taped to the cash register at Jack Stoke Shop. A 12-year-old? Yeah. When I was 12, a picture was taken and he put it on the cash register because I would save up money, save up money, save up money, then go to Boston. And my dad's college roommate who lived there, I would stay at his place. We would go to Million Year Picnic. He introduced mm-hmm. me to Zippy the Pinhead. That's still there. Oh, is it? Same place? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, same place as I've ever known it, yeah. We would go to the co-op. We called it the Coop. We would go to Jack's and I would spend, you know, as a kid in 1984, I would go there with like, you know, 70 bucks or something and blow it all on jokes and magic. And Harold, who owned the place, you know, I loved the guy and I would just spend all day there talking with him and he put my picture up, you know, I mean, it became a more famous store. I think when Goodwill Hunting came out, there was that scene in there. Oh, really? Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's I only got to visit once and it was just like a time capsule because it was like, how does this place still exist? And I think shortly thereafter it went out of business. And then maybe that's how I got this idea to at least document these things or something. Yeah, I mean... That's amazing. If I had a store, like you were just talking about, like, you know, wanting to run a store, there'd be a lot of jokes and magic in there. There's no question. Also... I don't know if it's still there. I'm guessing absolutely not. But in Alston, there was the Primal Plunge. I don't know what that is. An underground bookstore. Huh. A lot of Robert Anton Wilson, stuff like that. All right. So, Stowe, the soundtracks are all, like we talked about, a unified length of 87 seconds. Although kind of skewing towards the functional, it is a fun soundtrack series with a personality that ultimately perfectly matches the spaces you choose to document and to preserve. I really like it. Uh, I don't know if it matters, but soundtrack number four is my favorite of the bunch. Your rippling synth work on that one, it's beautiful. It feels like a sunrise. As a whole, I'll give it three and a half stars. Yeah, I'm always kind of shocked because I didn't spend a lot of my musical life playing synthesizers or keyboards or anything like that. Even though I'm still kind of composing that kind of stuff sometimes. When I go back and listen to these things, I'm like, wow, did I make that? That's pretty good. It is. (laughs) Tuning my own horn. So I'm going to give it a 4.1 and uh, two thirds. Yeah, but what, I mean, what a great way to respond to your own stuff, to be surprised that you did it, and then to be able to relish it as a fan instead of a self-critical, <laughs> right. that's a beautiful yeah. thing. Well, hello, Party Milk, which doesn't really apply because we're already a band, but <laughs> Party Milk is Fang Wizard with a mask on. The mask is simply a different name. So you said there is no writing process. We hit the record button and see what happens. It's true spontaneity and true collaboration. And then where did the name Fang Wizard come from? Is there a meaning behind it? And Trevor said, I believe Mark came up with it. I remember liking how sort of unpopular it sounded. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. Uh, you guys are obviously were meant to make music together. All right. So August 18th, 2023, and we are talking not even a month and a half prior to this very moment. Party Milk's debut LP comes out, Your Problem as a Mountain. 
Mm. Or uh, Fang Wizard's sophomore album. Second. Depending so, on yeah, how exactly. Look at it. Yeah. Some of it feels incredibly inspired. Some of it feels like you're filling time. Hmm. But I do bold if I, if I like it. I do bold and italics if I love it. And okay. almost all of it is bold and italics. So I feel like most of it is pure inspiration. Some of it circles the hive, the party milk stuff. Do you remember during that time when you were recording it? Was it the same process as creating all the past Fang Wizard stuff? Was there anything that differentiated this material? Right. I mean, I think we definitely fell back on the same similar situations a lot, but uh, we also would kind of go out and do different things. Like, let's go to Trevor's car in the garage and we're going to like turn the engine on, (laughs) make some noises, uh, close the doors and record that and kind of use things like that. And we went like one day we went out into Rock Creek Park in DC and we're like banging on trees and things like that. So we are trying to like desperately trying to do different things, but then sometimes it's just guitar and bass again, you know? and that works and it sounds good have you heard schwarzwald fart by peter bratzman and han benink i don't think so so this is the most recent thing that i read about mojo that that blew my mind it's uh, a free jazz guy peter bratzman whose work i'm not thoroughly familiar with but Mm -hmm. in 1977 he and this other guy who's a percussionist went out into the black forest in germany with nothing but a uh not a nagra but there was another hot tape recorder at that time but pro level and they just recorded a few different kinds of saxophone percussion land birds air water great they would line up logs and have a homemade marimba they would splash in the water it's kind of amazing. It sounds like similar pool of inspiration, mm-hmm, uh, right. what you're talking about. So is the process of making the music more important than what you end up with? No, I don't think so. I think we're just using the process to hopefully come up with something that sounds different. So it's definitely about getting the best music. Trevor and I have actually talked for years about recording a band, guitar, bass, drums band outside, <laughs> like recording an album outside. I think that would be very cool. You know the band Heron? They're like an art rock band. Okay. You got to listen to this. So the band is called Heron. They have a few different things. Some of it's okay, but this one particular release was entirely recorded outside by a stream. Oh. And, and it's really, really nice. The songs are great, too. It's just called the Heron Mini EP from 1971. There's a track especially called By and By that I recommend. Yeah, this is really exciting. Do you plan on doing more stuff with him? He wants to do more frequent releases. We should also say that this album was actually recorded between 2011 and 2016. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. But we have like, you know, there's another hundred songs that we've done since 2016. But I want to know what 2023 Mark Robinson's up to, because I think we're ready. We're but, ready. Are we, are we we're ready? We're ready Good. for 2023 Mark. Okay. I'm ready I need to, to I need to know what this is. I got a question for you from Neil Ramirez from the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook group. He mm-hmm. asks, with the recent unrest Imperial FFRR and Air Miami Me 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 reissues, any mm-hmm. other vinyl goodies coming around the pike? Oh, no, there definitely will be some things coming. I mean, one of them is the reissue of the first unrest record. But I feel like the only way I can really reissue that properly is to purchase those blank album covers again and then decorate them all again and i'm not sure if i'm up to that but i also have this idea where i would put the blank sleeve in the container and then have directions that you could make your own cover 
That's brilliant. That's, I mean, not only does that solve an issue pragmatically, but it creates a whole new reason for people to buy it. Right. Yeah. I, so that could that, be fun. That's Might awesome. do a little, little of both. Maybe I'll do some, you know, if you want to pay a little extra, you can get a Mark Robinson original cover. And then if, you know, you can make your own cover, that will probably be even better than mine. The real magic trick is to do less work and charge more. So to have all the elements <laughs> shipped to you, make that the expensive one. I would definitely buy that. There's no question. So James Cox from the Team Beat Forever group asks, I know James. Will Team Beat conclude at some point? I don't think so. It will, you know, if I ever pass away. <laughs> which, you, which you will not. You will not. All right. I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but we've actually reached the end, except for the overview and shape of your arc. So this is okay. something that I am honored and esteemed to be able to reach a point where I can, from 30,000 feet, potentially see somebody's career as they might not ever be able to, because I downed it all in one sitting. I'm sure you did not go back and listen to every Mark Robinson release in order. I didn't. I should have because you brought up some things and i was like what is that <laughs> you have a very interesting discography and here's a little piece that i put together which i have to say i've been knocking it around because i didn't know when we would get up to this point this is the one piece of all my notes that i kept toying with and so right. i can say for sure that it's an accurate reflection of what i believe to be the shape of your arc to me the name Mark Robinson represents the distilled essence of the pure pop ideal. And the more I've had the pleasure of getting to know you, I also see a philosophy at play that playfully tightrope walks the fine line between boundless ambition and vehement anti-careerism. Not to mention that vague liminal space between what you see is what you get and who knows what's coming up around the bend. For years and years, kick it around with your school buds who pitched in some sounds to the squall. Whether or not they wound up actually being lifers in the game like you'd always planned to be, you managed to stumble onto pop greatness, whether by accident or purposely and with great determination. But that sound, and here's where my admiration towards you spills over into awe. That perfect pop just took its place on the shelf next to all the other cool sounds because playing a song or a piece for that matter for the very first time all the time became a far higher priority to you than making it big in the biz, whatever that means. Post-era Miami priority reshuffling consciously kept you all over the card deck, depending on where your inclinations lay that very day. Creative whims and the life of an artist have achieved full flower over the last 20 or so years, seemingly trumping the necessity for external validation, which all told coheres into a tale in which you unquestionably emerge the victor. Setting rules, breaking them, blending approaches, prolific at all times, no matter what's at play outside the room in which you're recording, and through it all, maintaining a high number of releases while keeping every last one interesting or excellent, but usually both. You've been nothing short of an absolute blessing in my life. Thank you so much for all the music, Mark. Wow. I don't know what to say after that. Thank you. Thank you's fine. You're welcome. That was very nice. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, really. My favorite three records of yours. Number three, Air Miami, Me, Me, Me. Number two, Grenadine Goya. Number one, Imperial. 
My least favorite is Flynn Flan's AOK from 1998. Hmm. Do you know your favorite three records and your least favorite? Of my own? Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. That's a hard question. I don't know. They're all kind of, uh, somebody else would say something like, uh, they're all my children. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that one before, and then I just have to sit through it. Right. I don't know. I'd have to, that's a lot, you know? Party milk, baby. Got it. I get it. I don't even know how to end something like this. If you've made it this far, then consider yourself blessed. Uh, Write me for the medal, right? Give me your address and I'll send you the medal. This is now officially a 16 hour interview, uh, which, you know, certainly I'm going to edit it down. Yeah, 16, four and a half, four and a half. No, no, no. It's nine plus seven. You're right. You're you're good at math. I got to get, I got to get my algebra going. (laughs) Honestly, for the rest of time immemorial, whatever I can do, obviously this is a a large part of what I can do, but whatever I can do to spread the word about how incredible you are and your output is, I have done so and will continue to do so until I take my last breath on this planet. Thank you. Don't have to say that, but thank you. Aside from just hanging up on you, I have no idea how to conclude something <laughs> this epic. <laughs> yeah, was it, I just I was at a thing the other night and someone shouted Irish exit as they were leaving without telling anyone. <laughs> that was pretty good. That's cool. <laughs> anyway, Irish exit. Is this you hanging up on me? Is that it? Yeah. All right, that about does it. Stay tuned, because next week brings a revamped redux of the most popular episode in discography history, the rise and fall of Jim Gordon's super episode, with a brand new forward by Gordon biographer Joel Selvin, whose book on Jim has just been published. But that's not all. We also have a surprise bonus episode in store for you. The return of Battle Royale. Don't miss legendary guitarist and producer Fernando Perdomo going head-to-head with yours truly on whether blood, sweat, and tears have any merit whatsoever as a valid musical entity. That's this Wednesday, so look out for it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Mark Robinson, Rudy Fishman, Becky Boyd, Teen Beat Records, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the Gen X flag wavers of 1990s indie alternative gold is to leap headfirst into the David Paho series, including the man himself rating Slint's discography. That's episodes 94 to 101. No Ages' Randy Randall rating the Jesus Lizard. That's 70 and 71. My interview with No Ages' Randy Randall. That's episode 88. The Bob Nastanovich rates Pavement 
Punishment series from 49 to 58, Nirvana episode 30, The Replacements with Bob Mayer, 28 and 29, and number 18, The Pixies. Also, episodes 131 to 133 is Will Hart rating the Olivia Tremor control. And of course, you also won't want to miss our Mark Robinson series, which so far encompasses episodes 128, 130, 135, and the next one, 136. Join us during the upcoming week. This Sunday, you can expect another deliriously sociopathic entry of Rudy Fishman's Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. These are real people with talent and a burning fire deep inside, just like you and I. Get to know your new music-obsessed friends. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because this Wednesday, March 6th, we've got Blood, Sweat, and Tears Battle Royale with Fernando Perdomo, and then on Friday, March 8th, we're coming at you with the rise and fall of Jim Gordon's Super Episode with Joel Selvin. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss him. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Osiris. <laughs>